Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. my friends who listen to Future Primitive. I'm sitting here on a wonderful, awful day with Stephen Batchelor. He is a contemporary Buddhist teacher and writer, best known for his secular or agnostic approach to Buddhism. Stephen Stephen considers Buddhism to be a constantly evolving culture of awakening rather than a religious system based on immutable dogma and belief. He is a translator and author of various books and articles on Buddhism, including the best-selling Buddhism Without Beliefs and Living with the Devil, a meditation on good and evil. His most recent publication is Confession of a Buddhist Atheist. Now, Stephen, what is Confessions of a Buddhist Atheist? Or more likely, what is a Buddhist Atheist? Well, uh, strictly speaking, all Buddhists are atheists because... Uh, Buddhism doesn't have uh, a role for anything that we would translate as God. So a Buddhist atheist is almost an oxymoron. The reason that uh, I chose that term was to highlight in in the context of the debate between the uh, the theists or the let's say the religious fundamentalists on the one hand and the militant atheists of our time on the other um, to suggest that there might be a middle way that one can be an atheist to have no belief in God or no need to use theistic language and yet uh, lead a a rich and full spiritual life and I think Buddhism uh, presents exactly that Uh, it gives us a a way of living that addresses the deepest of our human questions. It offers us a system of practice that includes ethics, contemplation, a philosophy, um, and yet it uh, does that without uh, implying any kind of metaphysical beliefs, including any uh, theories about the nature of God or any such thing. So a confession of a Buddhist atheist Again, I'm using the word confession rather than confessions to evoke the idea that this is, in fact, a confession of faith. Uh, It refers obliquely back to Martin Luther, who also wrote a confession. And this book that I've just published is really a confession of my own deepest um, feelings and, and views about the nature of life and how that has been developed 
over the last 40 years through my ongoing practice of the Dharma, uh, Buddhism. So that's what the book's about, really. It's introducing uh, the Buddhist way of life via reflections on my own experience of it and trying to carve this middle road between religion on the one hand and uh, what we might just call you know, just worldly secularism on the other. So how is it to be the human being, Stephen Batchelor, having studied Buddhism for all these years? How does it live in you as a human being? Well, um, that's a difficult question to answer because that's essentially what I'm trying to practice as we speak now. And it's it's true that I have studied a lot of Buddhism, I've translated Buddhist texts and so on, but more importantly, I've sought to internalize the, the values and the practices in such a way that they have probably become very much part of the fabric uh, of my own existence. So I don't actually reflect on that sort of question at all. I simply seek to lead a life uh, that is both true to my own deepest values and also one that responds, hopefully, in an adequate, in a, in a coherent and possibly even a helpful way to others in whatever situation I find myself in, like speaking to you now. And whatever emerges out of those Interactions is what it feels like to be Stephen Batchelor right now. So I would follow up with the question that uh, you spoke about this morning. Uh, what is the Dharma in a modern world? Well, the Dharma in the modern in a modern world is simply the uh, the the actualization of of the core principles and values of what the Buddha taught in the context of the issues that concern us today. And uh, this has always been the case. Uh, Buddhism uh, is quite remarkable in the fact of having adapted itself throughout its history to very different uh, cultural and historical situations. And so we have, let's say, for example, the Buddhism we might find in Sri Lanka as opposed to the Buddhism we find in Tibet as opposed to the Buddhism we find in Japan. And if you look at them, as it were, from uh, a certain distance, uh, they look very different. Uh, they seem to... They dress differently, they have different forms of religious practice, they hold different philosophical views, and yet each of them has adapted itself quite ideally to the conditions in those particular circumstances. So a reflection on Buddhist history uh, enables us to see how Buddhism is not a fixed, immutable set of doctrines and dogmas and beliefs and practices, but it's more like uh, a living organism that has uh, exhibited the capacity to adapt itself to uh, quite different environments and to flourish under very different circumstances. Uh, 
So as Buddhism encounters modernity, and I use that word rather than saying the West, because I think now we're actually um, beyond that division of East and West. We're now moving into uh, an inescapable global culture, whether we like it or not. And the Dharma is, as it were, seeking to find a form, find a voice uh, that is appropriate to addressing the concerns of this new cultural uh, environment. It's far too early for us to say what that will look like. And so the kind of work that I'm doing, and also that, of course, of many of my colleagues and peers, is, as it were, a kind of sleepwalking, a walking in the dark. Um, We're uh, experimenting and exploring with different ways of of thinking, different ways of, of, of presenting the Dharma, of interpreting the Dharma, and that is having a response uh, from those who, who listen and who read the books and who try to meditate. And it's through that um, interaction that at some point, perhaps, the Dharma will assume a form uh, that is uh, you know, visibly distinct from the forms it has assumed in the past. It's a work in progress, really. So this time might uh, signal the end, might signal the end of religions. And uh, so I'm interested in um, your secular approach Mm -hmm. to Buddhism. Uh, something that in an article you have called Buddhism 2.0. I'd like you very much to talk about what that means to you. Yes. Um, One difference, I think, in in the modern situation is that Buddhism is now encountering um, a culture, uh, societies, uh, worldviews, science, and so forth and so on, that um, have created a, a culture very different to any of those that we've known in Asia in the past. And, for example, Buddhism went from India to China. Now, China is quite different from India. But nonetheless, they were both cultures informed by antiquity and a common pre-scientific view of the world. Now, as Buddhism comes into modernity, it has a far greater gulf uh, to cross. And it may be that it will not be possible simply to modify, let's say, Tibetan Buddhism or Zen Buddhism or Theravada Buddhism, uh, the traditional Asian forms, in such a way that they will be more adapted to modernity. At some level, that's going to go on. It's already going on, and it'll continue to go on. But my own experience of having trained in these different traditions is that perhaps something more radical is called for in our time. And to use the metaphor that comes from the computer world, um, we might consider that Chinese Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism... Theravada Buddhism are like uh, software packages that all run on the same operating system. 
Uh, we might call that operating system Buddhism 1.0. And what is characteristic of that operating system is that it uh, uh, embodies the worldview of ancient India. In other words, all the forms of Buddhism you'll find in the world today hold certain common views of the world. They believe in reincarnation, in the law of karma, in the fact that there are multiple levels of uh, realms of existence, um, that the aim of the practice is ultimately to break free from the cycle of birth and death. Now, all of those features are not only common to Buddhism, but also are common to Hinduism, to Jainism as well. Now, today, I think, what may be required, um, rather than a modification of a particular Asian Buddhist tradition, is a rethinking of the operating system itself. In other words, to question whether it's intrinsic to Buddhism to hold the beliefs or the worldview of ancient India. So my um, experiment, as it were, will is to try to re uh, is is to try to come up with a <clears throat> a way of thinking that is completely uh, in accordance with the primary buddhist ideas and practices but has no reference any longer to the worldview of ancient india and when i use the expression buddhism 2.0 i'm trying to think of a buddhism that um uh, operates from a worldview informed, say, by the natural sciences, uh, a worldview that uh, people today, pretty much everywhere on the globe, take for granted, uh, how the world has evolved, um, how human beings have evolved on the planet, a worldview that is much more um, uh, informed uh, about uh, the evolution of life on Earth, um, a worldview that does not assume that there exist other realms of existence, a worldview that uh, is entirely agnostic as to whether there's anything that continues after death. In other words, <clears throat> a worldview that is uh, entirely secular. And by secular, I mean having to do with this time and age. Uh, one, one might say having to do with the concerns of this world, which as far as we know, is the only world in which life, uh, such as we know it, uh, has uh, come to be. So rather than base one's practice of Buddhism on essentially hypotheses of other realms of existence and so on, we concentrate our attention exclusively on the suffering uh, of, that we can witness on this planet. And a Buddhism that is premised on that kind of view of the world would be one that would operate on a different set of primary assumptions uh, that would make it something rather uh, unrecognizable almost for the forms of Buddhism that we currently know in, in Asia. I'm smiling because I'm thinking uh, I grew up in, uh, in Paris and uh, uh, impregnated with pragmatism. And so uh, what I'm hearing you say is there might be a middle way between pragmatism and mythology. Uh -huh. does, that, does that light up 
a candle for you? Um, I think there's always the danger when we strip away um, you know, ancient religious beliefs that we also uh, reject uh, the mythologies of those cultures. And I'm not at all advocating uh, a form of Buddhism that does away with mythology. And in fact, I feel that it's important to acknowledge that the language of myth um, speaks in a way that conceptual, um, let's say empirical type language simply can't do. So my first uh, book, or my first sort of book for which I'm known, uh, Buddhism Without Beliefs, was in fact uh, the, the starting point of this inquiry that we're discussing now. And there I advocated letting go of these classical Indian worldviews. But in the next book I wrote, Living with the Devil, I dedicated uh, entirely to exploring one of the central myths of Buddhism, uh, that of Mara, or the demonic. And I feel that um, for a religion, for a, I almost said the word religion, uh, for a spiritual tradition, a philosophical tradition, uh, such as the Dharma, we need to um, engage a, a plurality of discourses. I think pragmatism, particularly as it's understood in the American sense from William James, um, is a, a very a very helpful way of considering how the Dharma works and what it's for. The Buddha himself, I think, was quite clearly a pragmatist. He was interested in uh, addressing the questions of human suffering and seeking to come up with a, a practical and a credible and a doable response. And in that sense, he was quite uh, in tune with the sort of thinking that we'd find uh, in, in, in certain trends of, in modern philosophy. But at the same time, Buddhism carries with it uh, a very rich mythological uh, tradition. And the problem, I think, historically, is that Buddhists have taken myth as history. So, for example, the idea that the Buddha grew up as a prince and then one day he went outside the palace walls and he encountered a sick person and an old person and a corpse. This has been taken to be an, uh, in a, a biographical fact, there's absolutely no evidence for that in the early canon. Um, and also, it's very hard to actually, if you think about it, believe such a kind of story as having occurred to a particular person. Try and make a movie out of it. You can't film a thing like that, and anyone would believe it. But instead of rejecting it as, oh, that's just a legend, which is one Western knee-jerk way of of, of treating such material it's to acknowledge that actually it's a very uh, profound myth in other words it's a story that um, articulates I think the very core of what the Buddha's message is but not in uh, an historical or an empirical language it, the, 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 the power of that legend is that it speaks to pretty much any human being whether or not they have any great learning whether or not they know anything about Buddhism but we've all had moments in our lives when the veil of our comfort and security has been lifted and we encounter the fact that we are subject to sickness, we are subject to aging and we are subject to death 
And that's where the Buddhist project begins. It begins with acknowledging uh, that that is our existential condition and that turns our life uh, into a very radical question. And what the Buddha's uh, story um, illustrates is a way of responding to those questions that lead to a kind of resolution. And I think in the deepest sense, that's what religion is about. Uh, Religion is uh, those forms of life that we assume that enable us to come to terms with our own birth and death. And I don't think we have another word other than religion that addresses uh, those particular sets of concerns. So although I take the word religion to be very problematic because it carries so much other baggage, nonetheless I think the mythic language uh, that we find in the Buddhist tradition does, I think, articulate those core religious questions of what it means to be human, what it means to be a creature that could die at any moment and how can we live an authentic existence uh, from that perspective so um, I would like you to talk about the place of art in this ongoing interpretation Mm -hmm. and um, how art affects you and uh, what you feel about it. Um, art. Well, I see, my, I, I see myself, actually, as um, more of an artist than uh, either a scholar or a scientist. And for me, the arts are the ways in which we um, embody our imagination and I think that uh, the forms of Buddhism that have emerged historically are not just um, the products of doctrinal reinterpretation and so forth and so on but they are acts of the imagination I think Buddhism has survived as a tradition because it has uh, always managed to find a capacity to reimagine itself So when Buddhism goes to Tibet, for example, it meets a very different culture to that of India. That interaction uh, prompts the imagination to come up with other forms, images, ideas. So the imagination is very much at the heart of any process of creative adaptation, um, not only in Buddhism but in other traditions too, of course. And that raises the question also of to what extent the imagination plays a role in the practice of the Dharma itself, for an individual person. Um, I've always seen my practice of the Dharma as something like an artistic practice. And, And by that I mean that I'm not interested in just somehow uh, mindlessly repeating certain exercises and, and ideas that have been handed down religiously over the centuries, but to take those ideas, to take those practices as, as it were, um, tools within an artistic practice. And the raw materials of one's Buddhist art are, in fact, one's body, one's feelings, one's perceptions, 
one's inclinations, one's consciousness. And the purpose of the Dharma is to imaginatively uh, transform and reimagine creatively the potentials and possibilities of one's own life. So the idea of enlightenment, for example, uh, is not just a kind of mystical experience one has in the privacy of one's own soul, but actually enlightenment as understood, at least in some Buddhist traditions, is only complete when it finds form in the world, when it achieves uh, expression, when it either in the form of words or it could be in the form of a painting or it could be in the form of a, a movie or a dialogue or whatever. But to me, the imagination um, is uh, an integral part of what it means to be awake. So the practice, therefore, is operating on a different levels. It's operating on a level of, of quiet, sustained contemplation, which is, of course, by necessity, a, a very private a, a very subjective experience, but whatever insight emerges within that, in, within such meditations, um, only becomes uh, uh, realized when it is translated into uh, a particular form, expression, embodiment. And to me, that's very uh, much the same kind of thing as an artist's work who will start, let's say, with with an idea, with a vision, with an intuition, and then will seek to uh, translate that intuition via whichever medium that artist uses, be it paint or writing or dance, into a form that then makes that intuition available in the public domain, in the world of, of others. So would you say that... Uh someone like Gauguin was an enlightened being in what he transmitted? Um, well, it's always very difficult to, to take um, a particular artist, and as we know... Well, sorry to interrupt you. I, I thought maybe I would ask you if you could name some artist that you, whose art you think came out for, uh, of a certain level of enlightenment well the the artist i would immediately comes to mind is the english poet john keats and uh, keats knew nothing whatsoever about buddhism in england at that time buddhism was utterly unknown and yet he stumbled through his own extraordinary genius um, onto a notion which i think is central to buddhism that of negative capability now, Keats defines negative capability as um, when a person is able to remain with uncertainties and doubts without any irritable reaching after fact or reason. That, for, for Keats, was the uh, character that uh, enabled Shakespeare to produce his works. And for Keats, negative capability becomes uh, the source um, of uh, his own poetry and probably uh, for all great art that is worthy of its name. Now, Keats' definition of negative capability um, is the best definition I've come across for Zen meditation. 
it's uh, it's it's curiously exact, and it confirms to me how, particularly in the in the in Keats's odes, um, you have not only a work of extraordinary beauty, uh, formally, but you have, uh, I feel, a, 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 a profound insight uh, into the nature of human life. Um, Keats, of course, is is one of no doubt numerous uh, examples. Um, it's difficult to single out particular works in the visual arts. I'm just trying to think. Uh, let's leave it at Keats. Keats is good enough. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, Stephen Batchelor, I want to thank you very much for your kindness. And uh, I'd like to ask you what you would like to say in closing. What's on the mind and heart of Stephen Batchelor? Um, well, I, my, people often ask me, you know, if I want to practice, uh, people often say, you know, I'm very drawn to Buddhism. Well, what, what, what do I do? Where do I go? Who do I study with? What do I read? Um, and my answer really is, is that one needs to follow one's own nose, that uh, the practice of the Dharma for me is not about loyally following a particular tradition or teaching, although that, of course, can be an excellent thing too. But at some point, one has to find one's own voice. Uh, I don't believe that Buddhism is about turning out clones of great enlightened masters who preserve... Uh, the same teachings that have been handed down generation after generation. But rather, for me, the Dharma, as we find in the early texts, is about discovering one's own independence. The Buddha said that the person who enters the stream of the Eightfold Path becomes aparapachaya, becomes independent of others in the teaching. So to me, Buddhist practice Buddhist teaching is not about becoming dependent on Buddhism. It's not about becoming a member of some club, but it's about finding one's own feet in the world. It's about finding one's own voice. It's about living one's life as a human being in which one flourishes as optimally as one can. And if one's Dharma practice can support that process, then I feel the, the Buddhist teaching is still with us today. If not, then I think it is in danger of becoming a relic. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jeff.